So why do energy states of hydrogen, hydrogen have a lifetime? <coughs> There's a spontaneous emission rate, so they will decay. I'm still confused about the even-odd trick that you used in class to eliminate some of the integrals in the hydrogen atom example. How do you exploit the oddness with respect to z? So we're calculating a matrix element of z. So the operator z is odd under z goes to minus z. So we'll need some combination of wave functions that are also the product of the initial and final wave functions also has to be odd when z goes to minus z. So we were interested in a final state that was just the ground state, so it was spherically symmetric. So it's even under flipping the sign of any coordinate. But some of the n equals 2 wave functions were proportional to r cos theta, which is z. So those ones are odd when you flip z. I found it interesting in the hard sphere scattering example, the differential cross-section is independent of the theta angle. What does this mean? So it means uh, when you scatter things, they come out equally at all angles. So it's spirit, well, it's rotationally symmetric. So we would say it's an S-wave. What exactly is the impact parameter? You have your target. You imagine the beam line toward the target. Zero impact parameter would be going down that beam line, hitting the exact center of the target. The impact parameter is the distance from that beam line that goes through the center of the target. How does our quantum example differ, differ from the billiard ball example in 11.1? And related question, why do the wave functions, what do the wave functions look like for small r? This morning I found this cool thing. So that tall spiky thing is some quantum wave packet, and the red thing is a repulsive potential. So we're going to scatter it off the potential and see that the wave functions at short distances are really complicated. And then when it gets to the edges, it's got the periodic boundary condition, so it's silly. So the difference between the classical example is that when you, when you scatter a classical particle off something, it goes off in one direction. In quantum mechanics, when we scatter it off, it goes off as some wave function. So it's in a superposition of classical scattering states. And it would be really hard to keep track of that short distance, short time behavior. If you think scattering is hard, that would be really hard. So it's like when you do Fresnel and Fraunhofer diffraction patterns. You guys remember those? Did you ever do diffraction patterns? Diffraction patterns get lots of their, you're looking at them far from the, the slits. Same thing happens here. What would equation 11.12 look like for 1D and 2D? That's the equation that uh, says we have an incoming wave and an outgoing spherical wave. What would it look like in 1D and 2D? That's a problem on your next homework. So you will know the answer soon. What does the spontaneous emission rate predict in experiments? It predicts line widths of states. So the natural line width. So if you look at the energy spectrum and frequency space, those emission lines have some width in frequency that comes from spontaneous emission. Why must we use a plane wave in quantum scattering field theory instead of some other kind of wave uh, to make life simple? Because if we had to actually to do an actual small wave packet, you'd have to do it numerically. But most of the time, that's a good approximation because your wave packets tend to be bigger than the size of this thing you're trying to scatter off. Why do incoming plane waves generate, generate outgoing spherical waves? So if you imagine, you guys did Rayleigh scattering at some point in your lives. 
imagine there's some light coming from the sun and it scatters off a molecule in the atmosphere. The scattered light will look like what? It has to be a wave expanding from the molecule that the light scattered off of. So it has to be expanding out from that point. So it has to be something like a spherical wave. So it's spherical because the scattering happened at a particular place. And then the wave, the scattered wave has to emanate out from that place where the scattering occurred. And the 1 over r tells you that uh, probability is conserved. Because there's, or in the case of light, that the energy that the power is conserved. The light coming in to the atom scatters off into a spherical wave. If that, the intensity of that spherical wave was constant, then as it gets further and further away, there's more light, because you have to integrate over larger and larger spheres. That 1 over r keeps the total energy constant. And for scattering, the 1 over r keeps the probability constant. I'm not sure where equation 11, 12 came from. Came from that hand waving that I just said. You have an incoming wave, it scatters off something at a point. At some far away from that, what you see is a wave coming out from a point. It must have a 1 over r to conserve probability. And you put in a fudge function to uh, make up for the hand waving. So you try to solve for the fudge function. And uh, far away, that should be a good approximation. Can you explain what the Born-Oppenheimer approximation is used for? Um, well, in molecules, we did the, the hydrogen molecule, at least the ionized version. You pretend that the heavy nuclei are held fixed, then you solve for the electrons moving rapidly around those fixed nuclei. Then you map, you get some effective potential as you change the distance put the, the nu nuclei of the two atoms here, and then I change it to here. That changes the wave functions of the electrons, which change the energy of that state. So then I map out the energy of what the energy that corresponds to each position of the nuclei. And then I can refine the calculation by thinking of how the protons will move in that effective potential. So that energy as a function of distance is a potential for them. So they'll find some preferred position by minimizing the energy. And then we can treat it quantum mechanically and look at the energy levels around that state. But it's also called other things in other areas. So in particle physics, it's called effective field theory. And the, the idea is always the same. You uh, first figure out things that are moving quickly, and then get some uh, average description of that, and then then solve for the slow things. If you tried to solve for the fast things and the slow things at the same time, it's really, really hard. And the things that are moving slow, if they're moving slowly, something can move many, many times, oscillate or orbit many, many times while they move just a very small distance, then they're just seeing the average of that rapid behavior. don't understand equation 11.4. I don't see how they got it. Uh, now I forgot what 11.4 was. I knew 10 minutes ago. Anyone have a book? Anyone ask? Anyone know who asked the question? <coughs> some little piece of area in the beam. This is a little piece of 
area of the sphere around the target. And this is the function that we're interested in. So this is a definition. And then they're just plugging in the geometrical factors that determine these areas. The area of a little piece of the sphere, the area of a little piece of an annulus. simplest case is when our particle is a proton, and we remember that the gyromagnetic ratio for a proton is given by this formula. <coughs> GP is 5.59. So if we took one Tesla static field and a 10 to the minus 6 Tesla 
radio frequency field. The resonant frequency. You get 42 megahertz. The width and frequency. proportional to the resonant frequency times the radio frequency magnetic field over the static field. So for our example, this is 10 to the minus 6. So you get 85 hertz. So by making the RF magnetic field much smaller, we're getting a very narrow resonance. So we can get, we can pick out just that hydrogen atom, just the hydrogen atoms in our, whatever, inside our magnetic field. So why is this cool? Anyone know? cool that you can turn on a radio frequency magnetic field and make hydrogen atoms do this at your will, flop back and forth. So Robbie got a Nobel Prize for that. But in addition to that, uh, you can do it in a sample of something. And uh, if there's a, usually protons have electrons around them because they're inside atoms. So if you do it more carefully, the electrons around the nucleus affect the magnetic field that the nucleus sees. So you can tell the difference between a hydrogen, hydrogen gas and hydrogen in water because the electrons around it are different. So people who uh, work this out, or block and Purcell. So that's the same block from, remember that block theorem? When we did band structure? Uh, back in chapter 5. So back in chapter 5, he was a famous theorist, and then he said, got tired of equations and became an experimentalist. So he got the, no he got the Nobel Prize for his experiment, not for his theory. Just got, got a theorem named after him for being a theorist. Get a Nobel Prize for being an experimentalist. And the Purcell is the same Purcell from the 21 centimeter line. You guys remember that one? So he got this the year after he did the 21 centimeter line. So if you look at different types of nuclei, uh, as long as they have a net spin, then you can do this. And each type of nucleus has a different resonant frequency. So you can put in a sample of some stuff and figure out how much of that stuff there is, element by element. You can also figure out where exactly it is if you are careful with detecting uh, where the where that frequent the radio frequency that's coming back out comes from. So in a human body, these things that you can detect with NMR have different abundances. And for humans, uh, it's called MRI, not NMR, because nuclear sounds scary, but magnetic resonance imaging sounds cool. So anyone had one? Anyone know you have it? What'd you do? What's that? Can you talk about it? Uh, I just located my cap put it in there and take my camera and make a lot of noise. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 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 
for how long did it take? Um, so you can get some pretty uh, detailed images this way. I like these eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> so this, this is another. If someone asks you why quantum mechanics is cool, tell them. You get things like this. Oops. Any questions about that? Yeah. I guess what I wondered about the MRI was um, obviously I work in the MRI lab, we've got here upstairs, and when you see how you, how you get the, the frequency you talk with, then how do you translate that into the image? Well, so you have to have detectors, you have radio frequency detectors around to detect the, once it's absorbed energy from the radio waves that you sent in, then you can let it relax and it will spontaneously emit that stuff back. So you need some clever arrangement of detectors around it and then it can hook that into a computer to reconstruct where it was coming from. So you have to solve some inverse problem. So is it essentially the interference pattern? Yeah. yeah. <coughs> if you have a lot of the same stuff in your brain and you have some molecule of each uh, a photon from a point, couldn't that be reabsorbed and then be sent somewhere else and go toward the information of where it came from? Yeah, it could. How do you go so around that? Well, you're doing you're getting enough photons that not all of them get lost. <coughs> and also as you're typically you're scanning through frequencies, so you're getting during each scan, you're tuned to a particular type of nucleus. So you're getting information about different nuclei, different elements at different times, and then reconstructing that all. So that, that goes into how they decide to shape the image as well. Dude, they're crazy high detail. I've seen images like this when I go to the MRI, and they kept zooming in to her kneecap, her hip, and Super high resolution. Mm -hmm. yeah, they have a bunch of mathematical methods for improving this now. Uh, they can run at different frequencies and then they can add them and subtract them to get different images and do phase responses and that sort of stuff. There's some crazy stuff they do. Also in the position to answer one of our stump the chump questions. So one of the questions was how do quantum computers work? And NMR is also part of the answer to that. So you guys are familiar with computing. You write a bunch of ones and zeros and fill around with them. That's what a computer is. Yes? <coughs> Pardon me? <laughs> Is that that thing that I did with cool at all? So, imagine that we have a quantum system that has two states, like spin half particle, or the pol polarization of a photon, or two energy levels in an atom. We'll call them zero and one instead of 1 and 2, because then it sounds more like computing. So, um, what's interesting is that if we use these two states in the system to represent a bit, the bit isn't 0 or 1 necessarily. You can make a linear superposition of 0 and 1. So, if this is the bit in our quantum computer, has a probability amplitude to be zero, probability amplitude to be one. It's interesting. Let's say that we have two of these guys.
now we have four possible states. So we have two times two. Now we have a register that can be a superposition of the numbers zero to Three. This is three in binary. So if we have three of these guys, I don't have to keep writing this, right? There are eight states. We can have a superposition of those numbers. So if we have n of these guys put together, we have two to the n states. So if n was some number like 100, then we have more states than we have atoms in the universe. So we, could, we can store more information in our quantum computer than you could write down or represent in a regular computer. You could write a, num a bit on every atom in the universe on a classical computer made out of the entire universe. You wouldn't be able to hold this much information. And uh, as long as you don't make a measurement, these, <laughs> things, these things are in a superposition of all possible numbers. So you can simultaneously, if you, so what is an operation? So each, for this set of registers, every, everything that you can do to this can be represented by a four by four matrix, right? because that's the space of states. So you just have to figure out, um, you have some AND and NAND and NOR gates. What do those do to the particular numbers that you have in your register? Figure out a way to make that happen in your quantum system. That will be some matrix. will act on these four coefficients. But while you're doing that process, it's doing it simultaneously on all possible numbers that could be stored in the memory. So that's called doing parallel processing. But it's not processing two individual sets of numbers. It's processing all possible numbers. So some examples of things that people have tried <coughs> to set up to do quantum computing. NMR, so you put, you have a molecule with some different types of nuclei. Each type of nuclei could be one type of register, or one, represent one bit. You have an ion trap. So make a, a electromagnetic trap that holds a individual ion, single ionized atom. So the energy states of that ion could be represent our two-state system, and you can you can put actually several ions in the same trap. Each ion can be localized at a different place. So if you're sensitive to where the um, photons are coming from when you make the transitions, then you can associate each of the, those individual ions with a separate. It has a superconductor. So in a superconductor, uh, what happens is electrons pair together to make something like a boson by exchanging phonons, which are lattice vibrations. And those Cooper, bear, Cooper pairs Bose condensate. Bose condensation. That's how you make a superconductor. So you can set up a tunneling Josephson junction where you can by changing the voltages, move a pair of electrons back and forth across the junction. So you can represent which side it's on can be zero or one. Now the, the key part is that you don't want to do any measurements on your system until you get the final answer. But uh, you guys didn't believe that measurement had anything to do with your consciousness, right? What is a measurement? 
measurement just means that you've uh, collapsed the wave function to some particular state. And you could do that by setting up something that does a measurement. But if your system has any interactions with the environment, then just random interactions can effectively make a measurement. So remember, we read about decoherence in NMR. So <coughs> scattering off other things in the system will introduce random phases. So if we have a whole bunch of atoms in our NMR experiment, and they're interacting with the other atoms and the environment, they can uh, interact and keep their same energy, but it, the interaction can mess up the phase. So in particular in NMR, each atom is, when, we, when we're sending in our RF magnetic field, each atom is precessing around <coughs> that field, around the static field, but it's crucial if we want to actually read out the information that they're all processing starting at t equals zero, they're all here and they're all processing coherently. If they're processing incoherently so that they're all random places around the circle at t equals zero, then they're going to tend to cancel out. There'll be an interference pattern that cancels out that uh, radio frequency. So by these random interactions with the environment, we tend to lose that quantum information. Question. Yeah. So when you say interactions with the environment, you have a sample that you're conducting NMR on. Do you have to have an incomplete vacuum for it to give you a perfect signal? Or well, but there are other atoms in the sample that can be interactions between atoms in the sample. So you have to prevent interactions between atoms sample, not so easy to do. <coughs> you might have to cool it to absolute zero. Or four degrees Well, cooler the better. So that, that decoherence process, also called the T2 relaxation, um, that has some difficult time. So I believe in a typical NMR setup, that decoherence time is order a few seconds. Uh, there's some theoretical estimate that under perfect circumstances you could imagine making it 10 to the 4 seconds. There's similar things that go on in ion traps. So that one is about 10 seconds and superconductors 10 to the minus 8 seconds. So even though we've got this beautiful parallel processing going on, it will only keep doing that for a short amount of time. So the question becomes, how fast can you do your calculations? What's the clock speed on your computer? So the time to do an operation uh, for NMR is about 10 to the minus 3 seconds, 10 to the minus 6 seconds for an ion trap, and 10 to the minus 10 seconds for a superconductor. So there's part of a correlation. This one lasts a long time because the nucleus of an atom is pretty well isolated from its environment. But that means it's harder to do these manipulations. The superconductor is not very well isolated from the environment, but you can do the operations faster. So there's a correlation. If you try to make this time longer, you tend to make this time longer too. So there's a trade-off. So the number of uh, steps you can do in your computer code be the ratio of these two things. So these are just some theoretical estimates that someone has that you could do 10 to the 7 operations. I don't think anyone's done more than 1,000 <coughs> steps in any actual quantum computer. So if your programs are limited to 1,000 steps, you can't do too many interesting things. So it's, it's an unsolved problem whether it will actually be useful. But there's lots of people working on it. Any questions?
questions, then we're going to be scattering. on the z-axis, and I send in some particles, and it's moving parallel to the z-axis distance b away. b is called the impact parameter, and this thing has some potential, and it scatters off. So that's the general situation. If we, um, specialized to an easier calculation to do. Put in a hard sphere. It's a billiard ball with a BB scattering off of it. So we know how it will work. We make the normal to the surface of the sphere. Then it will scatter off at equal angle. So we can measure, in general, we call the angle that it comes out theta. So in this case, on the hard sphere, this angle theta between the z-axis and where it comes out is uh, pi minus 2 alpha. So, if it, so there's alpha here and alpha here for the reflection, so it's pi minus 2 alpha. So given that angle, we can find a relation between theta and the impact parameter. So this distance here is, is r sine alpha. so that we can handle quantum mechanical situations and also lots and lots of particles coming in and scattering over and over again. So we make an angular, annular ring around the z-axis. That's supposed to be a ring that's perpendicular. We'll take a little of that ring, so it's a ring around the beam axis. So our part we have particles going through that little piece, and they go in and scatter out of off the scattering target, and they emerge inside a little piece of the sphere. So say the x-axis is pointing that way and this thing is offset from being straight above the axis it's rotated out of the board by some angle phi and 
this guy comes off like some angle theta. Then the omega is sine theta d theta d phi for a unit. d phi for a unit sphere. area on this ring is B, D, D, D phi. So, so this distance is B, D. D is the distance from the D matrix. <coughs> this distance is So there's some function that tells us how this area and this area are related. So every particle that comes in through this little area exits through that area. This function that relates them is called D in the book. Function of theta. It's also called the differential cross-section. So plugging in our definitions. So plugging in for d sigma and d omega Sphere E was R cos theta over two. So PD by D theta is minus a half R sine theta over two. So our differential scattering cross section. I plug in E is R cos theta over two over sine theta. Times d d theta. And all the theta dependence cancels out, and we have r squared over 4. So the total cross section. Particles are coming in. 
number of particles that are coming in per unit area per unit time. called the luminosity. So the number that would be entering that this area D sigma would be the luminosity times that area. That's the number per unit time. If we multiply the number per unit area per unit time times the area, we get the number per unit time. also write it in terms of this differential cross-section. So that means we can measure the differential cross-section by counting how many particles per second come out through some area of that unit sphere. So the number of particles per unit time per area on the sphere. That's a function of what angle we look at. Divide by the number that are coming in per unit area per unit time. <coughs> so. probably haven't done much scattering, so I'm just going to talk about some uh, context. So in nuclear physics, they measured a lot of uh, scattering cross-sections for things scattering off a nucleus, obviously. And they decided that SI units were not very practical. So they introduced the unit of a barn, which is 10 to the minus 28 meters squared. So this is a typical size of a nuclear cross-section, which is reflects the fact that nuclei are very small. And why did they call it a barn? You guys know about the broadside of a barn? And so you couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. That's. I thought that was Calderon and was just like <coughs> same class. It was like seriously. That's why they did that. Yeah. They're funny guys. <laughs> So, you guys have heard about the LHC, which is going to run hopefully now next year. The luminosity of the LHC is 10 inverse femtobarn per year. So, if we if we measure a thousand events at the LHC, a thousand scattering events, what cross sections does that correspond to? Well, from our formula, we would put in a thousand events per unit area, divide by the luminosity. If we assume it's spherically symmetric, then we'll get uh, a thousand times four pi over luminosity. So that's about a thousand times ten over ten inverse temper barns in one year. So femta barn is 10 to the minus 15 barns. You guys knew that. So you get a thousand femta barns. So that's 10 to the minus 12 barns which is 10 to the minus 40 meters squared. So now we're talking about really small effective areas. So this is partly because the particles we're talking about are smaller than nuclei, but it's also because we're working at relativistic energies. So the probability of scattering at those energies decreases. So it's not just the size of the particles that matter. And speaking of dark of matter, you guys know about dark matter? 
So people set up experiments underground trying to look for dark matter. If dark matter is there and it has some interactions other than gravity, it could scatter off a nucleus. And if you build a sensitive enough, sensitive enough experiment, you might be able to find it. So right now, they're looking in this range. This is uh, the cross-sections that they've got down to looking for dark matter, 10 to the minus 46 meters squared. And they're hoping that they get, get a few more orders of magnitude, maybe down to 10 to the minus 50. This is considered the interesting range for dark matter cross-sections scattering off nuclei. So you thought, if you thought atoms were small, Any questions? Yeah. If you have some target nucleus floating in the middle of the chamber, <coughs> and you're waiting for those dark matter particles to bounce off of it to measure the precision. Well, you have you have a whole bunch of nuclei, and then you try to measure. Typically, there's some very small exchange of energy. So if there's some nuclear recoil. That nucleus will bump into something else, maybe emit a photon, and you have to try to capture every photon or every electron that gets bumped loose. So some of the detectors are made in solid state, so they look at lattice vibrations of the crystal. So the most advanced one that people, that people here actually work on is made out of xenon. So there's xenon liquid and xenon gas in a big tub, and you can look for scintillation events in the liquid and also electrons that are released. So typically there's MEV energies. I think. So you have to be very careful, capture every bit of stuff that happens and wait a long time. The longer you wait, the more luminosity you get, right? In fact, or integrated luminosity. So next time we'll do serious quantum scattering. <laughs>